Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome John Bell A.O., actor, director and theatre manager and one of Australia's most respected and loved theatre personalities to Books, Books, Books to discuss his latest book, Some Achieve Greatness, Lessons on Leadership and Character from Shakespeare and one of his greatest admirers. That book was published here in May by Pantera Press. Now I'll tell you a little bit about John. After graduating from Sydney University, John joined Sydney's Old Tote Company in 1963. He won a scholarship that enabled him to spend five years with the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. When he returned to Sydney in 1970, he co-founded the Nimrod Theatre Company, which he ran as artistic director until 1984. Then in 1990, he founded the Bell Shakespeare Company, which quickly became an Australian institution, performing in theatres, schools and communities across the country. As artistic director until 2015, John has produced some 15 of Shakespeare's greatest plays. In 1997, he was recognised as one of Australia's living treasures and he has won countless awards for his contribution to theatre in this country, which is second to none. John has an honorary doctorate from the universities of Sydney, New South Wales and Newcastle and his memoir, The Time of My Life, was published in 2003. John, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much. John, you fell in love with Shakespeare in high school, thanks to two very fine English teachers and a great desire to act. What play was it that you uh, read or studied first, and were you introduced to it by reading it or by performing in it? Um, The first play I came across by Shakespeare was Midsummer Night's Dream, and this was at Maitland Morris Brothers, and I was about, I guess, 14 years old. The teacher we had was um, the football coach as well as the English teacher, uh, a big man with a big voice, <clears throat> and uh, he loved theatre, he loved Shakespeare, he loved performing. And so he threw down a copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream on each desk, but instead of saying, let's read the play, he said, I'll do it for you. And he acted out the whole play. Wow. Uh, not in one sitting, but uh, in a half an hour, every English lesson, uh, marching up and down the aisles, playing all the roles, describing the sets and the costumes and the, the pratfalls and the gags. Uh, he loved playing Bottom. That was his favourite part. His Titania, Queen of the Fairies, wasn't quite as convincing, but he put his heart and soul into it. And we couldn't wait for the next English lesson and the next chapter of Midsummer Night's Dream. And then after that, he took us off to the, the movies to see all the Olivia movies, the Henry V, Hamlet, Richard III. And if ever a live show came to town, which wasn't that often, being in Maitland, um, we were marched off to the town hall to see some sort of touring company. So I got a love of Shakespeare very early on and uh, I responded to it and he could see that I was interested and he encouraged me to um, go into the local of Stedford and start performing. 
John, when did you first perform in one of Shakespeare's plays? And which play was it and what role did you play? Well, um, I did some at school, you see, because my second English teacher was also inspired. Um, and I had him in my later year, my last two years of high school. And he was a great lover of theatre. And he said to me, we're going to put on a play night in the Maitland Town Hall, which was a rarity. The Maitland Morris brothers had never had a play night. Um, it was very much devoted to maths and footy, um, not to theatre. So he hired the town hall and he said, you can go ahead and arrange the programme. You can choose whatever plays you want to do and you can design the show, the costumes and the sets, etc. and I'll hire all the stuff from Sydney and we'll put on a show. So I chose um, Oedipus Rex and uh, my favourite scenes from Henry IV, which we were studying at school, and a pantomime, which I devised with myself as the chief clown. And then he hired all the costumes and he arranged the lighting and we had two glorious nights in the Maitland Town Hall. And I realised many years later, of course, he did that just for me. It wasn't for the school or for the other kids, it was all, all for me. And that was an extraordinary gift. And I only wished that he was still alive and I could thank him properly because I didn't realise until so much later just what that had cost him to do that and what he invested in me. So uh, that was my very first experience of performing Shakespeare Live. At university, I did some more. I did, uh, I played Coriolanus at university and Malvolio. And um, that really, uh, those four years at university were a very heady time because there was a lot of theatre talent around at that time. Uh, I worked a lot with uh, John Gaydon and the late Richard Weirat, uh, Ken Hawler, the late Ken Hawler, um, Ron Blair. We did a lot of uh, review and uh, some contemporary plays and also a fair bit of Shakespeare. So those four years at university were uh, an education in many ways in life and in academia and uh, also in theatre. John, over the years you've been delivering talks and presentations on the subject of Shakespeare and leadership uh, in various different places for some time. How did that come about? How did you come to be giving talks like that and who, who were the people you were talking to about that? Well, as the, uh, the head of the... Bell Shakespeare Company, I was um, called upon to make first night speeches after every play, uh, every opening night, and I would say a little bit of, uh, about the play and about the production. And um, it, I was invited then from one of those evenings to come and give a, a talk at a corporate lunch about Shakespeare and um, his connection to leadership and to business and so on. And uh, that caught on and I became invited at invited to several of those kind of uh, occasions. And at one such, uh, there was a, a publisher present, Mr. John Green from Pantera Press, who said, look, um, why don't you put all that down in writing and I'll publish it? So that's how this book came about. But I've been doing this kind of talking about Shakespeare and leadership now for, for some years, off and on. John, in your introduction, you write about your first real experience of leadership, and that was when you co-founded with Ken Haller and Richard Werrett, The Nimrod, in 1970. In 1974, the company moved from Darlinghurst, from the stables to larger premises in Belvoir Street, and you write about how you tried to run the company on democratic lines. Could you tell us a bit about that and how it worked out? Well, it was a great idea, and it didn't work out all that well in the long run. Um, because we were a small group of people, uh, we tended to share our ideas and enthusiasms among the group and reach uh, consensus uh, around the table. And as the company grew larger, we maintained that kind of uh, connection with the rest of the staff 
And so we had about, I guess, 20 or 25 people on board, all in all, with the workshop and the actors and house people and uh, so on. And so we'd have regular company meetings. And um, we invited suggestions and comments and um, you know, feedback from the whole company about what the company was doing and where we were heading until it came to the point where the, the, the company meeting uh, took on the, uh, the mantle of we are running this company, we are the administration, and uh, everyone's voice is the same as everybody else's. So that the um, lady at the box office or the lady um, in, in somebody in um, in wardrobe or one of the carpenters could suggest a, a play and how to do it and uh, it had to be given due consideration which i didn't mind i quite enjoyed the sort of the, um, <clears throat> the repartee until it became uh, taken for granted that the company would vote on company policy and uh, and and uh, context and uh, you know repertoire and that's when it got a bit silly and it was very silliest when somebody tried to move the notion that selling tickets was elitist and all tickets should be free. And that's when I thought, we've got to shut this down. It's gone too far. Um, this is not what it's all about. And uh, I learned from that that what a company really wants is someone at the top who listens to everybody, can, can weigh uh, all opinions and uh, agendas, and then make a decision. And that's what uh, you, you can call it a benign despotism or whatever you like to call it. But I think that's how a company has to run. People want to be led and they want to have someone at the top who knows what he or she is doing. John, you did lead that company in 1984 and you said that in your book you vowed you'd never lead a theatre company again. In 1990, you were persuaded, clearly a little reluctantly, to start and to run another theatre company, the Bell Shakespeare Company. You're the artistic director there until 2015 for 25 years and you say, not surprisingly, that in that period you learnt a lot about leadership and also about life. What was the most challenging situation, do you think, that you had to deal with as the head of Bell Shakespeare Company and how did you get through it? Well, we had many, many challenges in our first seven or eight years because we had no government funding. Um, we had uh, no corporate sponsorship. And so we depended entirely on donations and uh, private supporters. Little by little, government money started to trickle through for uh, special projects, etc. but no guarantee of any uh, further funding. So it was pretty hairy. Those first seven years, there'd be weekly board meetings about can we pay next week's wages or can we afford to go to Melbourne, etc., etc. Um, eventually, we managed to get on a good financial footing, um, which has been maintained. But I guess our biggest crisis, and I can't think what year this would have been off the cuff, but um, about, I guess, uh, 15, 16 years down the track, it would have been, um, we lost our general manager um, rather suddenly. And uh, we had to decide, well, do we advertise immediately for a new general manager? And uh, chair, a very um, smart woman who'd been involved in the, in the corporate world in uh, uh, human resources, said, why did you try running the company by committee uh, and see if you can do without a general manager? So we thought we'd give that a go, that we'd, uh, each section of the company, whether it was workshop or wardrobe or finance or marketing, um, would meet and uh, bring ideas and suggestions. And uh, then my fellow artistic director, my uh, co-director and I, would um, come to a decision. 
Um, so be, but before we did that, we thought, let's talk to the whole company individually. And so we had them in one by one to come and talk to us, myself and my, my partner, um, about what they thought about the company, where it was heading, where it could be improved, their own job satisfaction and what they would like to be doing. And they each got about a half an hour interview and we collated all that. And then at the end of that process, we fed it back to the entire company. This is what you all said. We didn't name names, but these were the ideas we received. And uh, these are the ones we think are really important. They're going to act on immediately. And so we, uh, that process worked quite well for maybe a couple of months, meeting by committee and everybody chipping in and uh, feeding ideas to my partner and myself. And we realized we'd need a general manager after all. Uh, some of the mind of the shop while we're out in rehearsal or on tour or whatever we're doing, someone to, um, you know, just hold on to the reins, but still keep that process of company meetings and people floating blue sky ideas, everybody allowed to, to speak up, but not, as with the situation, feeling they were in, therefore empowered to, um, you know, uh, decide on policy. They could feed into policy and suggest, uh, but they weren't to assume that uh, this wasn't going to be a sort of a collective and that uh, process has worked very well. We uh, shifted people around. We, just, we invented jobs that suited their own personalities and their wants. We uh, found a new general manager from among the ranks, someone who had been a company manager until then. And she is still uh, in that job and doing it extremely well. So the whole process of just listening to people, letting them open up and uh, give out all their ideas and suggestions was a very healthy um, exercise and taught us a lot about uh, the company we were trying to run and how we could do it better. And John, you've talked about that in your book, that one of the aspects of good <laughs> leadership is holding company meetings. Why are they important? Why is that such an important um, feature of, of running an organisation or a company? I think for several reasons. One is to keep the company's um, ideas and um, agenda up front, <clears throat> it's very easy people to forget what the company is there for, especially as people leave and new people come into the company. Uh, the, the message isn't up front. A lot of company culture and memory is lost with those who leave. And uh, so you need a constant reminder of what we are here for, what we're trying to do. And you can reiterate that um, in various forms um, regularly. But also it's important that every department in the company Here's what each other is doing. Um, people in wardrobe don't know much about what um, marketing is doing. People in marketing don't know much about what um, the workshop is doing. And hearing all their um, challenges and hardships and successes, it really feeds into the whole company spirit of everybody's pulling their weight in their own departments. And it's interesting to hear what they're doing and what, uh, what they're achieving. So it makes a much um, more sort of... Um, I suppose, family feeling about knowing what every member of the company is doing and how they're succeeding and what their challenges are. So it, uh, it brings the whole company together in a very, very good way. Um, so I think they're the two main reasons for having regular company meetings and encouraging everybody to speak up and, um, you know, and also to receive information firsthand rather than um, on the grapevine, to be told stuff from the horse's mouth at a company meeting this is what's happening, these are the challenges, these are our problems. Uh, otherwise, people uh, start, rumours start, and scare campaigns can get underway and people feel 
uh, left out or I didn't know about that. No one told me. So uh, that's a way of avoiding that sense of deprivation and builds a, a real esprit de corps, I think. John, something else you talk about um, in this book about leadership is the importance of knowing when it's time to go and having an, a firm succession plan in place. Could you talk a little bit about how you managed your departure from Bell Shakespeare? Yes, I uh, had appointed um, over the years people to work alongside me as an associate director or as a, a company uh, director. and. Um, one of those got a, a job offer from another company to take over another company, so she left. And then I acquired another one, um, Peter Evans, who's now the, the artistic director of the Bell Shakespeare Company. I took Peter on as my associate director, um, and uh, he worked alongside me for five or six years before I was going to leave, so that uh, he was well in, um, you know, uh, well informed and uh, highly involved in what the company was doing rather than just someone who walks in, uh, uh, into a new job not knowing the company culture. So he was well uh, in, in, imbued with the company culture and where, what we were trying to achieve and uh, was ready to take over seamlessly when I left. I was toying the idea of leaving early on. It was a hard decision to make, but when it came to 2015, I thought, okay, I'll be 75. I've been here 25 years. That's a very neat number, a good one to go out on. So I, I planned to leave at the end of 2015, and he had plenty of warning, and the company had plenty of warning that that transition would take place because I had seen other companies where the company artistic director left uh, in you know, rather hurriedly or uh, unannounced, and the new person coming in had to really start from scratch and uh, work out what the hell was going on. So I think a smooth transition is really important for everybody's sake and confidence and um, also the feeling that uh, you've done what you had to do. I thought if I stay any longer, I'll just start repeating myself and uh, that wouldn't be a, a very uh, worthwhile activity. Let's, let's talk about an example from Shakespeare of a lack of succession plan or a very poor succession plan. Talk to us a little bit about King Lear and how <laughs> his failure to have in place a succession plan led to catastrophic events for him. Yes, well, King Lear, has, you've picked a very, very good example of a really terrible succession plan. <clears throat> King Lear is, um, has outstayed his, his welcome. He's, uh, we're not told, told exactly how old he is, but he's uh, represented as being a, an aged patriarch. Um, you have to imagine in his 80s, I, I suppose, although it's never specified. Uh, and he has three daughters. And uh, he decides he won't actually retire. He'll just uh, split the kingdom up among the three of them. And then he will spend a few months here and a few months there with his retinue of 100 knights uh, on an extended holiday, as it were, uh, with no responsibility but all the perks. And between the three of them, they can uh, run the kingdom. Well, it's, it's a crazy idea. Uh, as soon as you split a, a, a job into three parts, you're going to get two ganging against one, or someone trying to rise to the top. Any triumvirate is doomed, as, as we see in Julius Caesar. So uh, that's a bad plan. Even worse, he makes it a, a love test. Whoever loves me most will get the biggest part of the kingdom, which is also uh, inviting hypocrisy and treachery and double standards. Uh, and two of the sisters 
do exactly that. Whereas the third one, um, Cordelia, refuses to play the game. And so she gets bawled out and exiled and sent off to France, while the other two then start fighting over who's going to have the whole cake and get rid of Dad because he's now he's in the way and he's um, useless. I mean, oh, him and his hundred knights charging in every weekend and taking over our place. So it's a terrible plan. <clears throat> also, the idea of cutting your kingdom up into three um, is uh, it's very contrary to what uh, uh, a leader should be trying to do. And in fact, it's a kind of, I suppose, compliment to King James, who was Shakespeare's patron, who at that time was trying to unite England and Ireland and Scotland into a united kingdom. So he was saying that King James is doing the right thing and King Lear is doing exactly the reverse and making doing exactly the wrong thing, A, by splitting his kingdom up, B, by having a terrible succession plan, and C, by inviting uh, hypocrisy and, and uh, lies and double standards into decision-making. John, before we come to the various qualities of leadership that you talk about in your book, let's talk a little bit about Shakespeare himself. Why is it that he was such a, a great uh, observer of human nature? How did he become such an expert in how human beings behave? Oh, look, Nikki, I think that's uh, instinct. I think one is born uh, empathetic or not, interested in other people or not. I think he was a very great observer and listener. He found people fascinating. He was curious about uh, all sorts of things, uh, history and nature and navigation and science and uh, you know, uh, all those things. But uh, above all, he was interested in people. And he was obviously a great listener because he catches people's uh, inflections and dialect and ways of speech uh, in an uncannily um, accurate way. And also with that observation uh, comes uh, a psychological instinct to understand why people are behaving like that and why they're talking like that. So these psychological ins insights are quite extraordinary and always convincing. So I think he was simply born with that talent as uh, any great artist is born with a talent and his was in listening and observing and being able to um, replicate the way people really behave. You also talk about in the book the fact that he was very close to the centre of political power and that's what gave him such a particular insight into how politics work. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, uh, when he first came to London uh, <clears throat> around the age of 20, he started working uh, as a, a jobbing actor uh, with various theatre companies, the Lord Chamberlain's men, uh, for instance, and the Admiral's men. And uh, soon he was asked to start patching up old plays and uh, writing new ones. And little by little, he gained a great reputation uh, as an actor and a, a playwright. And uh, before long, he and his fellows were invited to become the Queen's own private theatre company, the Queen's Men. And so they were on hand uh, throughout the year Whenever she wanted a performance, uh, the, the Queen's men would have to rally, uh, leave their Globe Theatre and go out to Greenwich or wherever she was and put on a show. And so they were her private troupe. Uh, when she died, uh, her successor, King James, took over the company and now they became the King's men. And King James was a, a more demanding uh, patron. He demanded uh, many more performances. In fact, uh, 11 of Shakespeare's plays were performed for Christmas uh, uh, one year for King James. So he was an avid uh, theatre lover and a patron. And uh, so Shakespeare and his company were at the, the very top of the tree 
um, as the, the, the best troupe of actors in, uh, in, in England at that time. Let's talk now about some of the qualities that you've identified as uh, being very important for leaders. We'll talk first about the good ones that you isolate, and then we'll come to some of the less attractive ones, arrogance Mm -hmm. and entitlement. Let's start with courage. What does it mean for a leader to be courageous? I think um, to take responsibility, to be there, to be up front, to um, um, be one of the team, but to lead the team as, uh, you know, uh, um, first among equals, if you like, um, to listen to advice and uh, seek expert advice, but then act on um, your, but what your conscience tell you is, is the right course to take, whatever people around you are saying, um, to, to having listened to good advice, then to have the courage to, to follow that and trust your instinct and uh, you know, uh, do what you think is the right thing to do. John, which of Shakespeare's characters best demonstrates courage in leadership? I suppose Henry V is the the closest to an ideal. Um, He's not absolutely ideal, not because Shakespeare is too much of a realist to say this this guy was perfect. Um, His invasion of France is on a very flimsy pretext and uh, some of his tactics uh, in in the war are questionable. Uh, But um, as a leader, he is able to inspire uh, his troops they are outnumbered, they are starving, they're uh, demoralised, and he still manages to rally them to fight uh, the most, one of the most famous uh, battles in English history, simply through um, listening to them, moving amongst them as, a, as, as an equal, um, spreading a, a contagious optimism and confidence, um, and uh, being there for them when they need him. I think that's one of his most important qualities that they feel he's available to them and cares about them and uh, you know, um, promises them that um, they'll be okay under his command. And that, uh, that takes a fair bit of persuasion in, given this dire situation they found themselves in. He's also a fine orator, isn't he? You isolate that speech that he gives as one of, being the, one of the great pieces of really ins- inspirational um, oratory. How important is it for a leader to be a strong speaker, a good communicator, an orator? Well, uh, I think the two things are a little bit separate. You can be a good communicator without having to be a great orator. Mm-hmm. And the main skill in communicating, of course, is listening, to, to listen more and talk less. Um, so that's the most important aspect of it. If you have a honey tongue, like Henry V um, or Winston Churchill, um, that helps. Um, it certainly helps to inspire people and encourage them, but you can do more by example. You don't have to be a great orator or a great wordsmith to be a, a good example of leadership, I think. Um, someone like Lincoln was a great uh, orator, um, but others like um, say, people like Nelson Mandela uh, led more by example and fortitude than through what they said. It was what they did mattered more. John, let's talk now about decisiveness. How important is it for a leader to have good timing? Oh, that's very important, and it's sometimes accidental. Sometimes you don't know it's good timing until you've uh, taken the risk. Um, You can try to set up good timing, but you can be caught out. You can be caught short. I think 
whatever the situation, one of the worst things you can do is procrastinate. That really drains your whole team of confidence and energy. So uh, it's better to be uh, decisive, even if it's risky, rather than um, sit around and wait. That's one of the things that Lincoln found most infuriating with his generals, that they would they would refused to um, take take on the enemy, and he would have to go from battlefield to battlefield and ginger them up, and sometimes take over himself, mm-hmm. uh, because he they, uh, until he got um, uh, Ulysses S. Grant and uh, Stonewall Jackson on side, the other generals were um, you know, lacked that um, that zest and that confidence. So good timing is is really important. Sometimes it's fortuitous. Uh, you can't always make good timing, but I think it's better to take the risk and jump in rather than leave everybody dangling and uh, worrying. John, you make the point that, of course, the opposite of that bad timing can be fatal for a leader. Tell us a bit about Macbeth and how it was his bad timing that really contributed, amongst other things, to his downfall. Patient is a better, better way of putting it, but uh, bad timing will do. <laughs> it's pretty close. Well, I think um, Macbeth and his wife are examples of people who are very charismatic, very successful, uh, have all the qualities of being uh, tremendously successful leaders, but both of them are impatient and overambitious and lacking, of course, in, in moral, um, moral compass to deal with the things they do. But perhaps the, the biggest mistake they make is to say, look, the king's coming here tonight, uh, let's kill him tonight after dinner and we'll blame somebody else, blame the grooms or blame his sons for it. Um, that's totally reckless. It's a very bad plan. Nobody buys it for very long. And then Macbeth is forced to cover up his tracks and try and get rid of people who know too much or who suspect him and he becomes a kind of a paranoid tyrant as a result. But um, if they were going to carry out the plan that they hatched, they should have waited for a better opportunity rather than sort of uh, jumping in headfirst and saying, we can get away with this. That's a kind of a, a criminal mentality. You give an example of decisive leadership um, with Henry V, and you make the point that he was ready to take very tough decisions. What did he do when he was faced with the treachery of three of his knights who were very close to him? Well, that's one of the uh, aspects of Henry that is kind of ambivalent, I think. Um, He has no hesitation in dumping people um, if they let him down or in his way. Um, The three knights that uh, uh, betray him uh, to the French, he executes uh, on the spot without any remorse at all which I think is, um, one could say, right and proper. What else does one do uh, if people have, are tried to have you assassinated? Um, on the other hand, his dumping of Falstaff uh, and his cronies uh, is a, a rather callous uh, act, I think, and shows someone who is um, you know, ready to move on and dump old friends who um, are no longer useful to you or who might bring you uh, into disrepute. Um, and perhaps one of the other cases is uh, his execution of Bardolph, one of his soldiers, an old drinking buddies, who steals uh, um, something from a church in France. And so Henry has him hanged as an example to the others who don't touch private property. Uh, we're an invading force, but we don't behave ourselves. So uh, he's pretty ruthless when it comes to maintaining order. And um, I think the one thing that... Um, weighs against him is he does break the heart of the Falstaff, his oldest friend, 
because false stuff just actually is no longer useful. Let's talk now, John, about charisma. You make the point that for a leader to be charismatic, it must be authentic, not not put on, not costumed charisma. I'm wondering, is charisma enough on its own for a good leader or do you need something more? Oh, I think you need a lot more than charisma. I think charisma comes easy. It can be a a totally false face and false glamour. It can be manufactured so easily by a team of spin doctors and, uh, you know, um, PR people. Um, It's a worrying commodity, I think, uh, that people like Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini Mm -hmm. had charisma. You can see it in the the adoring crowds that they um, gathered around them. Um, But it was an an evil force that they they had. Real charisma, I think, is something that is bestowed on you rather than what you carry around with you. People um, give that to you once you've proved yourself to be um, to have integrity and uh, honesty and trustworthiness. That is a charisma that uh, you earn. It's nothing that you uh, you're not necessarily born with it. You can work to to achieve something, and that in itself brings with it people's um, admiration or applause or whatever you want to call it. And so charisma is something that you earn rather than a quality you're born with. And people who are born with it, I, um, I'm always a bit sus- suspicious of because uh, what's underneath all the tinsel? On that point, let's talk a little bit about Mark Antony and Cleopatra. They both had bucket <clears throat> loads of charisma. Did it help them? Uh, it didn't help them in the long run, no. They had a wonderful time <laughs> enjoying their charisma, but carried away by their own uh, publicity, if you like, and saw themselves as being sort of the great romantic lovers. Um, in the meantime, they ignored the, the duties of state. They ignored um, the enemy coming up behind them. Uh, they, they wasted their opportunity in a life of uh, decadence and luxury. Uh, so in Anthony's case, he, he got the top job, but then he didn't have the self-discipline or the, um, the integrity to hold on to it, and he really whistled away his best chance. Uh, so he's a, a rather tragic figure, I think. Someone like Octavius, who took over from him, was far more pragmatic and uh, cold-blooded, not nearly as attractive a drinking buddy, but a far more successful um, leader of, an, of a of state. Let's look at it from the other angle. Do you think that you can be a, a strong, successful leader if you lack charisma? Oh, I think you can. I think, as I say, charisma is its a rather loose word, actually. I'd rather say respect or um, admiration or um, uh, approval of the people working around you. Um, that, in, in, the, in, in time, can become almost legendary, someone like, say, Weary Dunlop, for instance, uh, people who play low status, they don't go seeking publicity, they don't go seeking glamour, but they carry on their job in such a way they earn tremendous admiration from their uh, people around them, and that in, in turn, in time, becomes a kind of legend. Uh, and we see that something that happens uh, after you've reached the top. You don't have to have it to get to the top. But um, once you've done something as remarkable as, say, Mary Dunlop did, then uh, the legend grows around you. 
Let's talk now, John, about integrity and humanity. And you make a really interesting point, which you illustrate with a number of examples, that those of Shakespeare's characters who show the greatest integrity are not the main protagonists, who are almost always male, but they're either what you call the inverted commas second rank characters, such as Horatio in Hamlet, and the women, Cordelia in King Lear, Portia, Merchant of Venice. Let's start by talking a little bit about some of those characters, Horatio, Cordelia, Portia, and how they demonstrate their integrity. Well, I think with the case of Horatio, he's the, the ideal best friend, the one who's always there when you need him, um, offers advice when it's asked for, is totally trustworthy and uh, open and uh, totally supportive, no questions asked. And that's a kind of um, male buddy, if you like, best friend, uh, with, and someone you can totally trust. With the case of people like Cordelia and, uh, say, uh, Hermione in The Winter's Tale, um, Desdemona, they are, the women there have extraordinary um, power of um, forgiveness and um, nurturing. So the, the more female qualities that we don't find in many of the male characters, um, they are what we identify largely as female characteristics. And um, they are amazingly, um, amazingly strong and constant. Uh, Cordelia is so abused by her, her father that is totally forgiving uh, of his uh, rage and, uh, and cruelty. Um, Desdemona, uh, on her deathbed, um, forgives Othello and tries to mm -hmm. save his life. Uh, Hermione, in his tale, is totally forgiving of her husband's dreadful abuse of her, locking her in prison, taking away her child, etc., uh, etc. Et so we find in, in the women those amazing qualities of uh, steadfastness and wisdom and... Um, forgiveness. Compassion and forgiveness, yes, yes. Why do you uh, think that is, John? Why do you think that Shakespeare has landed those most admirable qualities on either the lesser characters or the women? Why is it that the male protagonists don't overall show that same degree of decency and integrity? I think he was uh, looking at the male-female polarities, if you like, and saying the men have these qualities, the women have these qualities. Um, the ideal person would combine all of those. So he's trying to find the... the what we, we should all be is to have all those qualities. Um, given the society he lived in and the kind of uh, patriarchy that it was, um, uh, so male-dominated, all those male um, attitudes uh, were very much to the fore. Um, but I think throughout his career, he was trying to give women more of a voice um, uh, and, and more authority they start out being a bit um, over the top, like Catherine of the Shrew, for instance, uh, rebelling against male authority. Um, but little by little, the women first have to assume a, a male persona, a male costume, and pretend to be men, to be the authority, people like Portia or Rosalind, for instance. And of course, there are men playing these roles, so it's a man <laughs> dressed up as a woman dressing up as a man. Yes, exactly, exactly. But the audience still understood this as a woman that we're watching. And, but little by little, the women do gain authority not to, to, through temporal power, but through their own personal integrity and, uh, and um, 
intelligence. So I think he's trying to reconcile those two things. Like how can we have all these qualities in the one person? It, I, there was a certain dichotomy at work because even though it was a very patriarchal and uh, male and uh, quite violent society, it was headed by a woman, Queen Elizabeth, who um, played a, being a woman up to the hilt and used all her feminine charm and wit and uh, diplomacy, but refused to give in to a man. She wouldn't marry, she wouldn't give herself, she wouldn't obey, uh, have anyone as her lord. And she kept maintaining that she was, um, to a certain extent, male herself. She said, I may have the feeble body of a woman, but I have the heart of a king of England. So she saw herself uh, as a sort of a, a male figure as well as being the queen. So that was that interesting, interesting contradiction there, this patriarchy, but dominated by a woman. Uh, they had to pay court to. Before we move to the the really poor qualities, arrogance and entitlement, let's talk about one that seems to me to swing in the balance, and that's ambition. You make the point, and I think we all know that in some ways it's very important for a leader to be ambitious. In other ways, it can become a fatal flaw. When does it move from when to the other? At what point does ambition become a bad thing in a leader? When ambition um, disjoins remorse from power, that's when it becomes bad. Um, that ambition in itself is necessary. It's good. Otherwise, nothing would ever be achieved or done. Um, we have to have ambition in all sorts of areas. But when it disjoins remorse from power, that's when it becomes uh, a fatal flaw. And so uh, once you start ignoring people, and their needs and their wants, when you see seeing them as people, seeing them as uh, just numbers or um, instruments to play with, once you lose that humanity, then ambition becomes really, really dangerous. And we see with any of the, great, of the great tyrants of history, whether it's Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or any of those uh, people, the people don't matter any, to them anymore. They're just, they can be dispensed with. It's all about winning the game and, uh, you know, uh, building a, an empire of some sort where people become dispensable. So um, that's the, of course, the, the enormous downside of ambition, and we've seen so much of that throughout history. John, let's talk about that in the context of Caesar and Macbeth, how in both of those cases their overweening ambition really contributed to their downfall, their hubris. Could you talk a bit about that, about Caesar and then Macbeth? Yes, well, they're very different. Uh, Caesar is actually his main fault is, is narcissism rather than ambition. Um, he has had an extraordinary career as a great military commander. Uh, he's been made consul for life, which is a, a great honour. But he wants more. He wants to be. Uh, he wants to be the king, and uh, that is repugnant to, to all republicans. That the kings were kicked out of Rome. Uh, generations before, and they don't want to see the monarchy restored, but nothing less will do for Caesar. He wants this, the pomp and, and uh, ceremony of a, an oriental despot. So um, it's not to do with power, it's to do with um, self-glory and uh, status and uh, an image of himself. He has all the power that he needs, he doesn't need any more, so it's more about uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the pomp surrounding him that is important. With Macbeth, it's the other way. He wants power. Um, and uh, one can understand why, in a sense, because 
Um, he is one of a, a bunch of uh, noblemen, thanes, uh, who are more or less equally entitled to the crown. Uh, it's a kind of, uh, not so much an elected monarchy, but uh, anybody can be appointed to be king. You don't have to be in the line of succession necessarily. And so he's vying with people like the Duff and Banquo around him. You could always also make a, a claim to the crown once King Duncan is gone. So you, you've got to get in first, I suppose, is, is his message. And whoever grabs the prize hangs on to it. So uh, he is ambitious. His wife's even more ambitious, and that's, that's the, the, the problem. If it hadn't been for her, I think he wouldn't have gone through with uh, the assassination of Duncan. He's, um, he's very, very trepidatious about, about doing it, but his wife's ambition really forces his hand. Um, and she, too, is no monster. She has a very, a very delicate conscience uh, and goes, uh, goes mad with guilt, uh, not to all that long later. So neither of them are barbarians or brutal. They are just uh, over-ambitious, over-impatient, and I say lacking that moral compass that's, that stops them uh, in time from doing uh, one bad action, which then, of course, leads to another and another. Let's talk now about arrogance. How does Caesar's arrogance bring him down? Um, it's, again, to do with the narcissism, with uh, not listening to anybody, not taking note of uh, other people. Um, he's quite a shrewd observer of people. He sees that uh, Cassius, uh, for instance, is um, uh, someone who he has to look out for. He senses there's something dangerous about Cassius. But he's also um, so secure in who he is, that he thinks that nobody can really touch him. Uh, always I am Caesar. And uh, when people uh, petition him, uh, he, he rebuffs them. He doesn't listen to um, uh, people's um, needs. And he doesn't listen to good advice. He gets good advice from his wife, Calpurnia, and he gets advice from the soothsayer. Uh, beware the Ides of March. The soothsayer is a kind of, if you like, someone in the press gallery who can see what's really going on mm. and knows what's what. I'm smiling uh, because I'm thinking of Australian political leaders in recent <laughs> times who what you've said applies to. No that's names. right. You can't help but think of Australian politicians <laughs> reading all of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, but in the case of Caesar, yes, um, he doesn't listen. He doesn't realise that he's uh, reached his use by date uh, and he thinks that he can have... Uh, a total power and authority um, without any really uh, solid grounds for it. He's overriding tradition and convention, and uh, he's really out of touch with the zeitgeist, and that's a, a fatal place to be in. John, one of the lovely things about your book is how frank it is. So as well as talking about these qualities and how they are, um, how Shakespeare writes about them, you talk about your own experience as the director of Nimrod and artistic director of Nimrod and then of Bell Shakespeare. And you say in this chapter about arrogance that in the context of directing a show, there are two, or you say, or any project, there are two types of leaders, dictators and collaborators. And you say very disarmingly that you have been both. Would you like to talk a bit about when you were a dictator and uh, what you learnt were the shortcomings of that approach? Look, I think um, most young artists, most young, young directors um, <clears throat> feel the need to be the boss, to be that I am the director, therefore I direct, and this is my plan, this is my, my vision, this is uh, how I want it carried out. And uh, 
you're rather jealous of that and hang on to it and you don't want anybody interfering with it or making counter suggestions or in any way sort of subverting it. Um, you you, you, you uh, want to impose your, your vision on the whole project. As you get a bit older, you realise it's much more sensible to invite other people into the tent to hear their ideas and suggestions. Uh, they may have better ideas than your own. Um, their criticisms might be well worth hearing. Uh, and their enthusiasm will be encouraged by being invited to, to join the party and to speak, what, to speak their minds. Um, I learned a lot from uh, one director, Michael Bogdanov, who directed the Toilets and Cressida for us uh, in 2000. And uh, at the end of each week's rehearsal, Michael would uh, sit in a circle with the, everybody and say, now, how do you think we're going? Uh, how do you feel it's all proceeding? Any ideas, any suggestions? And people were invited to speak up. I thought that shows man who is very secure in himself, who knows what he's doing. He trusts himself enough to invite um, ideas and criticism. And perhaps if there's a good idea, he'll take that and run with it. I thought Beth is really um, a secure director. It not only shows his, uh, his sense of um, uh, uh, what, what he's doing, it also uh, encourages the rest of the team to feel invited in and to feel part of the project rather than just people who are there to carry out instructions or carry out orders. And you're much more likely to be a, a valuable contributor uh, if you're an enthusiastic one and one who feels appreciated. Uh, I've met other directors, um, a couple of European directors particularly in my career, who are the old-fashioned kind of director who doesn't call, just do this, do that, this is how you do it. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of kills your enthusiasm, your spirit in a way. You become something of an automaton, just uh, a puppet carrying out the director's vision. Now, that's not really so satisfying. And um, the effect isn't as long-lasting because um, you're doing it by numbers rather than from any real inner sincerity. John, to what degree in the leadership roles that you have held at Nimrod uh, and at Bell Shakespeare, have you been influenced by Shakespeare and the leaders that he writes about? Um, that's a rather hard one to answer. Um, uh, so simply, I think I've drawn a bit here and a bit there uh, throughout the years. And as I've done the plays over and over, my mind has changed about some of those characters and um, uh, what they represent. And uh, as you go older, the plays mean different things. Um, you think you know Hamlet when you're 20, when, when you're 30, it means something quite different. When you're 40, it means something else again. So the plays keep changing and therefore my, the lessons I learn from them keep changing. Um, someone like Prospero, for instance, in The Tempest, and seem like a very um, uh, frigid kind of tyrant, or you can see him as someone who's benevolent and, uh, and uh, charitable, um, or as someone who's um, inspired. You, you, you keep finding different elements to a character as, as you age and as you play them again and again. So I've tended to... Um, I guess, shift my ground a bit as a director and as an actor the more I study the plays. And I think that's probably quite a healthy thing to be ready to shift ground and change your mind and, uh, and adapt as, as the circumstances change. I think that's another quality of leadership is adaptability, flexibility, um, a willingness to say, okay, I can do this better another way. And a willingness to learn. Yes, indeed. 
John, you write that, and I think we'd all agree, COVID-19 has posed the greatest threat really since World War II to our uh, to humanity. You make the point that Australia, and I would say at least up until recently, has on the whole been very well served by its political leaders in terms of how it has responded to COVID-19. And at least until we've got to this stage now where there's some issues about the vaccination rollout, I think most people would agree that we have been well served by all of our political leaders. What is it that they have done right, really? What leadership qualities have our leaders shown that have enabled them to lead us well and to steer us through this crisis? Well, leaving aside the, the mistakes that I think nearly all of them have made, um, and they are not uh, entirely to blame for those mistakes because there are people that are advising them and uh, Circumstances keep changing and we keep finding out more and more about this particular um, plague. But uh, the good points that I think that have shown themselves are a firmness of resolve uh, not to give in to this thing, but uh, to spread an enthusiasm and an optimism that we can fight it, we can survive, we can manage this thing. Now, as I said before, they have made mistakes and haven't always um, uh, been successful, but they haven't let down their resolve or their optimism. Uh, whether that's genuine or they're putting it on for us, it doesn't really matter. Um, you look to a leader for that's kind of inspiration and sense of security and, uh, you know, we're all in this together, um, which we, 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 we get from the great leaders of the past too, like Churchill and Lincoln, uh, people who uh, stand up and represent um, the will of the people and saying we can all survive this thing. And I think if a leader doesn't have that quality, if they show, um, you know, excess anxiety or despair or defeatism, that's the very worst thing they could project. And none of our leaders have projected that. John, finally, how would you like to be remembered as a leader? For what qualities? <laughs> Benevolence, I would say, most of all. Uh, you can do all sorts of uh, get all sorts of things wrong, make all sorts of mistakes. Um, but I wouldn't like to be remembered as somebody who was um, unpleasant or cruel or um, heartless. I think uh, it's the leaders who are benevolent and caring are the ones you remember most and are most grateful for. John, thank you so much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Same here, Nikki. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.